Well, hello, church. If you would, open to Psalms 116. Psalm 116. I'm going to read the entirety of this for us. This is the Word of God. Psalmist says, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because He inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pains of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk with before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe. Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Precious. In the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, I am Your servant. I am Your servant, the son of Your maidservant. You have loosened my bonds. I will offer to You a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. In the courts of the house of the Lord in the midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Father, we again praise You. We could not ever give You enough praise. We could not ever give You enough glory. Our lives are meant. You've given us breath. We have beating hearts and life in us, Lord, to give You glory. And so, Lord, would You please use this passage and would You, Holy Spirit, come and as Brother Tim just prayed, change us by it so that we live lives that give You the glory that You and You alone are due. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, start by saying that this sermon uh, this morning is going to be more important than all the sermons we've preached for the last few months combined. I believe that. And I don't regret the sermons we preached the last few months. Um, they needed to be preached. Many of you thanked uh, Kent and I for our boldness to stand and talk about issues in the culture. Uh, we spent a few weeks on the LGBT issues. We spent time in critical race theory. We spent time on cultural fragility and, and the weaponization of emotion and all these different things. And I appreciate your uh, willingness to hear that and be thankful for it. But I will tell you, it doesn't take much boldness to stand here and say those things in front of believers. It takes a lot more boldness to leave here and take a stand on these issues in your job, in your family, in the culture, 
And I do know at the same time, though, if pastors don't stand up in the gathered church and speak on these issues and have the courage and willingness to say these things, there's a small chance the congregants are going to leave here and hold fast on these issues. Um, And so I say all that to say what I'm going to preach today I think is far more important than all those sermons combined. And here's why I say that. Because it's very easy to build a church or build a ministry about all the things that we're against. And it's much, much, much harder to build a church, a faithful, mature church that glories in what we're for. And I didn't give my life to pastoral work to to try to just rally up people against all the issues in the culture we're against. Give my life to this to gather us and, and put the Word before us so that we can glory in all the things that we're for. And so this week and next week and going into Easter and Good Friday, we're going to talk about the death of Christ. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Christ and glory in what we're for. That's far better than just talking about everything that we're against. And what I want to do today is kind of take us back to the basics in terms of picking a, a text to look at and ask, what are we doing here? And I wouldn't claim to know every, every heart here. Certainly, the reasons why every one of you got in your car and drove over here and are sitting there. Um, but I do know why you should be here. And I know why we, what should unite us. And, and why God gave us this building. And what we're supposed to do with it. Because Psalms 116 tells us all that. And so, um, this passage is very, very helpful. It starts with an I. It starts with a very personal word from the psalmist about himself, and then it moves into a corporate us. And so that's the flow of the passage. And and, and that even in itself is very helpful because if you study Christianity uh, historically, you go 2,000 years of, of, of church history, and you begin to look at what people thought the church was about or what Christianity is about, And you go to the West and you look at North and South America and you look at Europe and then you go into the East and you've got Asia and India and Africa and all these Eastern countries and you begin to go, is it more about us as a people corporately or is Christianity more about the individual? And and what you begin to find is that there's everybody saying both of those things. And it's not as simplistic as just saying, well, the West, we make everything personal and about the individual. In the East, everything's about the corporate nature of Christianity. That's way too simplistic. It it depends on denominations and traditions and and the era in which we're talking about. It depends on if it's post or pre-enlightenment. So many factors. And I, I bring all that up to just say, Many people are asking, is Christianity about the individual or is it about the collective whole? Is it about us or is it about me and my experience with God? 
And what, it's just, you, you know, you read through the Bible. If someone were to pick up the Bible, read through, starting in the Old Testament, they would immediately see, okay, this seems like it's about just being a part of God's people. Israel's all that really matters here. If you become a part of God's people, that's a good place to be, corporately. But then you get into the New Testament, and then Paul goes, well, in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. You must by faith receive the promise to be really a child of Abraham. So you see both the corporate and the importance of that and the individual faith of that person to be part of the corporate whole. And so Psalms 116 uh, personalizes and gives the corporate nature and they're both helpful. And, And it gets at these more modern questions of people who ask like, can you be a Christian and not go to church? Or can you be a Christian and not be committed to a church? And I just, when I hear a question like that, I think, what, it, what Christianity are you talking about? I don't know what Christianity is, biblically, apart from the church. I, I don't know what, what we're even talking about. When you read the book of Acts, every Christian is connected to a church. When you read Paul's letters to all the churches... They're written to churches. You know, when you read the Old Testament, it's always the people of God that are being addressed as a whole, Israel. And so here's what I'm saying. To know God in the Old Testament or the New Testament is to know Him alone and together. Or you don't know Him. It's both. It's always both. And so look look how the psalmist starts in this passage, in verse 1, he says something no Christian should ever hesitate to say. I love the Lord. Not, I love a Lord, as if to make Him just one among many and trivialize Him. Not, I love my Lord, as if to mold Him in my own image and make Him my own personal God. But the psalmist says, I love the Lord, the Lord of lords, the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, the Lord. I love the Lord. And I don't think any Christian hesitates to say that, but every Christian knows I don't love him like I should. We, we, we know we don't love him as we should, but we do love him. And we do have a genuine and a real love for God. It's just not impressive. And so we think, man, if I just, if I could have just been there to see Jesus do these miracles, you know, walk on water, heal these people, raise the dead, if I could have been there to hear Jesus, to sit sit with him and, and then hear him say my name personally, I would love him more. And I, and I would just say, maybe, probably not much more. Case in point, Peter. Peter was with Jesus day after day. He, I mean, he watched all the miracles. He was there to see all of it, hear all the sermons, be personally discipled by Jesus for three years. How many times did Jesus, out of his own mouth, say, Peter? And Peter denied him. 
And then, and then when Jesus, what's interesting and why I bring this up is Jesus, when he comes to Peter, what does he say to Peter? After that denial, he, he doesn't say, Peter, you're really sorry. You really screwed up. How, how repentant is your heart? How much sorrow? Is this real grief? He, what did he say to Peter? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. You know, there's a real sense in which all Christ wants from us is that we love Him. Not a half-hearted type of love. Not like I love you know, my wife and I love my kids and I love college football and I love Jesus. Not like that. But the type the law talks about when it says love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, that type of all-consuming, He is the supreme whole of my life type love that so consumes you that it actually is able to overflow into all the people and the things you're to love that God loves. That type of love. That's why, that's why in catechism, every week the gospel catechism we do in city group, we say at one point, what does a Christian love? Well, they love God. They love His Word. They love His people. They love His commands and His will. And they hate their sin because their sin is against the God they love. And so, if you want to love God more, you need to know God more. And I think a lot of Christians miss this. Honest Christians, if we're really honest with ourselves, many times we'll say, I, just, I know I need to love the Lord more, um, I just don't know how to do it. I just feel my love is so small. And I, and I just want to say, your love is so small because your knowledge of Him is so small. If you will know Him more, you will love Him more. That's how it works. For the regenerate heart. For the born again person. The more you know Him, the more you will love Him. And ignorance of God does not produce love for God. And I'm not talking about all of us being Bible scholars and having PhD type of knowledge. I'm talking about a simple minded Christian who reads their Bible and believes it. And, 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 and reads all through the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, and goes, if that's who God reveals Himself to be, I love that God. I love that God. He is the real God. And in verse 5, the psalmist says, Gracious is the Lord, and righteous our God is merciful. Which is not a controversial verse, is it? Why, why is verse 5 not controversial? Nobody debates this. And I think it's because we impose so often, or many people do, their own meaning into the word grace and mercy. Rather than letting that word grace and mercy be filled out with the Bible. Case in, in point, I was watching uh, a celebrity, I don't remember who this was, is a, they claimed to be a Christian. And they were getting an award and standing in front of a big crowd and this person, this guy said, uh, none of you, I, I know you're all told that you're perfect, but you're not perfect. 
And he just starts kind of preaching to everybody. You're not perfect. You say you think you're perfect. Everybody tells you you're perfect. You're not perfect. And the sooner you realize that, when you realize you're not perfect, that's when grace from a power above comes down. And I thought, this is not Christianity. It's at best deism. When, When we try to create our own way that grace works, what are we doing? We're idol worshipers is what we're doing. We're creating a God in our own minds that we bow down to and worship. That's the definition of idolatry. We don't receive grace from a power above because we're imperfect. We receive grace when we realize I'm a sinner who sinned against the only God and my only hope is to humble myself and call upon Him for salvation. And I, I don't know about y'all guys, but when I'm reading Scripture, my heart doesn't melt or, 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 or go aflame with love for God when I just generalize His mercy or His love and just kind of come up with my own idea. It's when I look at what He actually did and says. And that matters massively because only then are we really dealing with the real God. That's why Jonathan Edwards, I'm going to paraphrase him, he said Christianity is about the affections for God. So he says Christianity really is about loving God, but those affections are produced and grow only by aiming at the mind. So we love Him because we know real and right things about Him. We we love Him because we remember and we, we recall the ways He's really been merciful to me. This is why verse 1 is so helpful. He says, I love the Lord because. And then in verse 2, because He inclined His ear to me. And so in Hebrew poetry, some of you all know there's a literary device that's very helpful. It's called repetition. When you see a word and then that same word repeated right after it, that repetition of, of a word shows us the importance of that word. So we see in verse 1, because. We see in verse 2, because. And so he's telling us how love for God works. I love the Lord because He heard my voice, my pleas for mercy, because He inclined His ear to me. So here's here's what this is showing us. Christianity isn't a so that religion. Christianity is a because religion. Christianity isn't a religion that we do certain things, we love the Lord so that He will do such and such. So that He'll make my body healthy. So that He'll fix my marriage. So that my life will get easier and all the stress will go away. Christianity is not a so that religion. It's a because religion. I love the Lord because He's already done these things for me in in His Son. That is no small difference. Every other religion is a so that religion. And only Christianity can you say, I love the Lord because. Because He's forgiven all my hell-deserving sin. And given me His righteousness and His Spirit and eternal life. And therefore the psalmist can say in verse 9, I will walk with the Lord in the land of the living. Why? Because. Because. If every person in this room came up here and, and I were to have you come up and uh, 
and take a microphone and say, I love the Lord because, and fill in the blank, and you had to say something, what would you say? The psalmist says, I love the Lord because He heard my voice. And many people get mad. There's so much anger. I think a lot of that is because people don't feel like they're listened to. Nobody's hearing me. I talk and my wife doesn't listen. I give instructions and my kids don't listen. My boss doesn't care what I have to say. Everybody's mad because they're not being listened to. Why does that make us mad? Because it's dishonoring to us. It's disrespect. We feel disrespected. How can they be so busy and not care about what I think? I mean, even in this week, uh, I, earlier this week, I, I really, it, it thought, occurred to me as I was studying this, I'm sitting here and in the course of just a few hours, uh, I get a phone call and I don't even look at it. it. May have been one of you, you know, I didn't even look. And I was busy. I was doing something. And then my kids knock on the door. I was in my office. They knock on the door. Dad, I'm like, hey, I'm busy, but hold on a second. And then somebody texts me and was trying to schedule a meeting, and, and I just said, I can't meet at that time. I'm going to have to... And how many people did I turn, or, turn away because I had two little things that I was doing? And yet our God, our universe-sustaining, multitasking, everything in time and space God, hears your prayers. What an undervalued blessing of salvation. It's an unbelievable. I love the Lord because He hears my prayer. When pain fills our bodies and anxiety fills our hearts and guilt consumes our souls, we know all I have to do is turn my heart upward and speak and He hears me. And I know some of y'all are thinking, Pastor, you can say that about all these other people, but you don't know what I've done, and you don't know what happens in our house, and you don't know how we speak to each other, and, or you wouldn't be saying this to me. This doesn't apply to my situation. And I would say you just aren't looking at the passage. Someone who loves the Lord isn't someone who looks at their life and doesn't see any points of failure or sin. Someone who loves the Lord is someone who sees many points of failure and sin and therefore calls to the Lord. The psalmist says in verse 3, the snares of death encompassed me, the pains of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, hear my prayer. Deliver my soul. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is merciful. You know, God's mercy isn't you don't get God's mercy because He didn't see what you did in secret. You don't get mercy because He didn't hear what you said. God's mercy is displayed because He did see what you did. And He did hear what you did. And yet He remains faithful to you in Christ. That's how we know our God is merciful. He doesn't turn a blind eye. And, and His mercy isn't something He just gives it's something He is. It's rooted in His unchanging character and nature. There's no supply chain backup 
You know, that, that, that you run out of supply and you don't get any more because you sin too much. It's rooted in who He is. So your bad day doesn't have the power to rob God of being who He is. And this is not a grace that you abuse and you run off and you just live in unrepentant sin. This is a grace that changes you. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounded all the more. And the psalmist says in verse 6, when I was brought low, He saved me. And I just want to appeal to maybe the one or two people who may be sitting here and thinking, and you're actually wondering, how can I be saved? Could, Could I be saved? What do you do? What if, what if that's you? What, do you? what do you say? Are there certain words? Is there a certain prayer you're to pray? And I would just remind you of what verse 4 says. It says, The psalmist called on the name of the Lord and he was saved. And our God doesn't change. And so I would assume you could be saved the same way. That was how I was saved. I was driving in my car, 18 years old, 2 a.m. in the morning, drunk, drinking and driving. And I called on the name of the Lord because I realized in that moment right before that, I'm going to hell. I am not okay. I'm lost. And I couldn't remember religious words. I couldn't remember prayers or verses. I did remember that Jesus died for sin and then He resurrected. And I'd been told that many times. And so I called on that resurrected Jesus and with no flashy words, but it was the right Jesus. And therefore, He had the power to save me. Didn't know the word justification. Didn't know any of this stuff. I was saved. And He'll do it for you. Isn't that all of our testimony who have been saved? The same as the psalmist. I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. When I was brought low, He saved me. Verse 8, You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. If you have a salvation testimony, that's it. And don't ever, don't ever forget it. Even if you were saved at six. You know, Jesus Jesus died for the sins you committed before you were six, but you also commit sins when you were seven and eight and ten and twelve and thirty and fifty and seventy-two and He had to die for those too. Why devalue a young conversion testimony when you had years of sin after that that He had to save you from? That's not an unimpressive testimony if you're still saved today. This is all of our testimony. You know, this week I went, um, in light of being in this building today, I went back to all of the places that we had met as a church since the beginning. Started in a living room. Uh, didn't go knock on those people's door and ask <laughs> if I could go in there. 
uh, living room, but went to some of the other places, University of West Florida, and drove down some of the inner city buildings we met at and just took pictures and just remembered. I thought, I need to remember. I need to remember where we were as a church and where the Lord's brought us. And the same is true for our salvation. You have to remember where you were and where you were going and where He's brought you and where He's taking you. You have to. It's the only path forward for us. And then look at verse 12. This is where the passage shifts to the corporate. Look at what he says. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? Answer, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. You see, the the personal salvation testimony, verse, well, the whole beginning part, leading up to verse 12 through 19, the corporate confession. One always leads to the other. So uh, we see this in the New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Peter preaches all these people, 3,000 get saved. They get baptized. They immediately join the gathering, the church, the ecclesia, the assembly. And then it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is they were teaching the Bible, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, fellowship, loving the body, and the prayers, which is corporate prayer. That's always the progression. You get a personal testimony, you now have a a corporate confession. And this is actually, I wrote down a definition if somebody wants to remember what the church is. Here's a definition I wrote. The church is an assembly of called out ones, called out from the world by God to the Lord and to one another. Two regularly assemble, confessing their faith in Christ, first in baptism, then at the table, through the right preaching of the Word, genuine loving fellowship, and corporate prayer. That's what the church is. The church does more than that, but that's what the church is. That's who we are. And we're not pragmatists either. So when I walk in here, you know, and I look around, I don't go, okay, how do we fill up the seats? You know, that balcony's dark up there. Can, how do we, you know, what do we do to get more ministries? We aren't pragmatists. And we're not asking the, the, the philosophical question, why, Lord? Why would you? We already know that. He's been gracious. He's a gracious God. We asked and He gave us a good gift. The, the question that I think I want to put before us to ask is the what question, which is what the psalmist asks. And verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? And the answer is this, worship. Always, the answer is worship. What should I render back to Him? Worship. I will lift up the cup of salvation. He says, I will pay my vows. I will serve. I will offer up a sacrifice of thanksgiving in the house of the Lord. I will praise Him. Those are not private acts of worship in, that, in the psalmist's own heart. You know, watching a sermon on the internet in his own living room by himself, it's corporate. 
He's going to the house of the Lord. He's gathering with the assembled people because he has a testimony. He has to come and confess Christ with the church. That's what he renders to the Lord. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me as an individual? I will render to him public and corporate worship with his people. Verse 13, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Verse 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Quick uh, side note on the importance of liturgy. Liturgy just means the, the, the way we go through a service and kind of our order of worship. Uh, there's a verse here in verse 10 I think is really important. And I'm going to give you the KJV on this. I think it's better than the ESV with how it translates it. He says, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. That's how the KJV translates verse 10. I have believed, therefore I have spoken. Which Paul quotes in 2 Corinthians 4.13 and says, in keeping with this, with what is written, that is uh, the passage we're looking at, I believe, therefore I have spoken. And he quotes it. He says, we, the church, who have the same spirit of faith, also believe and therefore speak. So that's the basis of our catechisms. That's the basis of liturgy and, and reading Scripture to one another or singing songs to one another. We don't just pick songs that you know, make us feel good or we like the beat of the music or something. We pick songs because they say true and right things about God that we believe and therefore we speak them to each other. We do what the psalmist says. We do what Paul quotes to the church. We believe, therefore we speak. We confess the gospel to one another and therefore it is a covenant renewal ceremony what happens in here. We're renewing our covenant with God and Him with us. And there's been a lot more um, talk about this in recent days in reform circles, I think. The, the kind of the whole liturgical flow of a service from the beginning of the service to the end that all of the service... Uh, is, is this liturgical flow that's a constant attempt to fix our minds on the gospel from the beginning to the end of the service and everything we're doing. That that's, that's what a, a church service should be set up like. So that in the scripture reading, the sermon, the prayers, the songs, you know, we're going to bring back soon the corporate, a time of corporate confession at the Lord's Supper even the closing benediction, all of it is a corporate confession of the gospel. And so we personalize the grace that's been given to us and our testimony, and we, we profess that corporately to and with the congregation. So you can't, you shouldn't uh, sing the songs we just sang or come to the table and just think Christianity, church, as some broad thing kind of removed from you. You should come to the table, you should sing, thinking, He has been merciful to me. The psalmist personalizes his corporate worship. When we do these things together, we're doing it as individuals and as individuals collectively. So it's not just a cup of salvation for all, it's I will raise a cup of salvation because of what He's done for me. And look at verse 13 that I think we take that in some sense in a metaphorical way, but also literally Christ 
at the Lord's Supper, at that last supper there where he instituted the Lord's Supper, he literally lifted up the cup of salvation and said, this is my blood for you. And I think that's what we keep doing until he comes. And, and church, let me just say this. I'm almost done. Um, none of this matters. None of, none of it matters. Uh, it's all worthless religion if you don't bring something here. And you can even forget the gospel and walk in these, uh, these doors every week and you can forget the gospel and sit down here and that's okay because we'll tell you and we'll remind you in song, in preaching, at the table, you'll remember the gospel if you come in here. You can come in here without the gospel and, and it'll be told to you. What you can't come in here and forget is your sin. Because if you forget your sin, you quickly turn into a, a Pharisee and our church becomes arrogant and haughty and prideful. You have to walk in here and remember who you actually are and what you've actually done this week in your life and I don't mean dwelling on it, you know, in unhealthy ways, but just remembering. And look, you can't take that away from me. I, I will not let you not let me think about that when I'm standing there singing or when I come to the table. I have to be able to remember who I am. I'm not a pastor. I'm John Mark, a sinner against God, deserving of his wrath and in need of Christ. That's reality. That's real truth. I need that so that I can worship. I'm, nobody can take that from me. I need that to worship the Lord. Forgetting our sin kills worship. Remembering our sin and remembering God's mercy leads to worship. Let me just close um, summing all this up. This building, uh, it, it, in one sense, it's just a building, right? It's, you know, especially those of you who helped us, you know, this is regular paint. This is regular carpet, right? It's all, it's just stuff. That's true. Uh, in another sense, this, all of this is very holy and sacred. Because it's not just carpet or just paint. It's all, all of these things are here. And when we're gathered in the name of Christ, this is a holy assembly, it's called. A holy gathering. And God is with us every week. And so in some sense, the whole place becomes holified, sanctified, set apart in a very unique way. And the things that God will do here should make us marvel. Um, our God really is gracious and merciful. Verse uh, Isaiah 30 says, He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. And some of our children will, will realize sitting in here that the snares of death encompass them. The pains of Sheol have laid hold of them and they will call upon the name of the Lord. Some others will just walk in off the street. We, nobody will know them here and they'll come in and they'll hear and they'll realize 
I need mercy. I've sinned against the Lord. And they'll call on Him. And we'll baptize them there. And they'll join the church. And they'll worship with us. And we'll do their funeral. And we'll be with them in heaven. Please get a vision for that. Please remember, that's what the Lord wants to do here and what He will do here. Because He exalts Himself to show mercy, not just to us, but to others. Church, let's go to the Lord and let's pray He would, he would do that. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we first praise You because You considered us as individuals You saw the sins that we committed in our own bodies, with our own mouths, with our own minds and hands and feet. You see it. You saw it. You heard it. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we praise You, Lord, that You have made salvation possible and that in Christ we have been saved. And Lord, we think about others, Lord. Others that You would welcome in. Others that You would show mercy to. And that You would call us to love and serve. And we pray, Father, You would, you would help our hearts to be compassionate. To be mindful of who we were before You found us. And Lord, that that would provoke compassion toward others and it would provoke worship toward You. And so, Lord, we, we ask You to do that in our hearts for the health of this church, for the good of this community, and for the glory of Your Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.